This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In a sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. My guest today is John Chester. John and his wife Molly run a biodynamic regenerative farm in California called Apricot Lane. If you haven't met them yet, you have to watch their documentary, The Biggest Little Farm. It's a beautiful story. Today we talk about what John has learned over the last decade while bringing his land back to life. He talks about how soil health impacts the quality of our food, what it means to live in harmony with nature, and how to find patience in the midst of chaos. We also talk about why he thinks we should prioritize beauty in our lives and what makes him hopeful for the future. I had the opportunity to visit the farm a couple of years ago, and I can attest it is a truly magical place. I'm excited to share John's wisdom with you today, so let's get to our chat. I think it's it's so important what you're doing and not only what you're doing, but the fact that you, because of your background, you were able to make such an incredible film about what you were doing and were able to educate so many people about what a regenerative farm is. And so, so just tell us a little bit. I mean, I know that sweet dog had a lot to do. He was, he catalyzed this in his own way, but we just talk a little bit about the journey that got you to apricot lane farms so molly being a your beautiful wife molly. Uh, my wife my beautiful my wife molly being a traditional foods focused chef was always interested in in being able to source directly from any farm that she respected and so we we both had the dream for a long time even prior to 2000 and you know 10 and 2009 we had a, the dream of one day doing something like that but living in Santa Monica and then having this dog bark his, we adopted this rescue dog. He, every time we left, he would bark his head off and we tried all these different methods. We got the collar that sprays the citrus and everything we could think of. And it finally was like, you know what? We have to move out of it. We can't live in an apartment. And this is our chance to maybe actually find a farm someplace. And it, it seemed impossible at the time, but we just kept telling people about this idea and then eventually we were introduced to a couple that were looking to actually invest in a regenerative style farm, something that focused on agroecology. And that's everything that Molly wanted and, and I wanted. And so it was just an amazing sort of coincidence of events that sort of uh, led us to that opportunity. And, and it was because of the dog, because it seems so selfish at this point in our career, or not selfish, but just crazy to think you could actually live this dream life. But somehow saving the dog as a part of that 
made it sort of feel a little bit less about us and more about something we were doing crazy for something else. I, I don't even think that's rational, but that's how we got ourselves through the sort of the hurdle of stepping off this massive cliff of the unknown. Well, especially because it's not you like know. you you weren't a farmer. You, you didn't come from a, you were a cameraman, right? I mean, you you didn't have any particular expertise in this area, so. No, I, I, I lived on two family farms back east, but they were corn and soy farms. And I, I didn't know much more than just like how to build fencing and drive tractors and use a weed whacker. So I thought I had some farming experience, but I really didn't know anything about soil health. And I didn't know anything about ecosystem stewardship, which was what we were getting into. It was more than just growing a tomato. It was about how to revitalize a habitat. So no, neither of us really had experience. But the thing we did know is that we knew that to maximize health in a preemptive way, it matters how your farmer manages his or her soil, because that is the transference of the minerals and nutrients that ultimately are absorbed into our, our, our guts and, and inform the health of our gut microbiome, which is our immune system. So we knew that we wanted to farm in that way. And, and that was kind of a guide for us to figure out which mentors to seek. And of course, you met Alan, right, who became that mentor. We were looking for someone that would look at the whole system, not just what the soil needed, not just what the plants needed, but would look at it as essentially the 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 process of reawakening an ecosystem. And we learned a lot about, at the time, about biodynamics. It's a, a farming methodology. There's also a certification process under Demeter. So it's like organic. In fact, you have to be organically certified before you can become biodynamically certified. What does biodynamic and mean? Essentially, so it's a method of farming that was developed by a man named Rudolf Steiner, and it essentially looks at the farm as a self-contained ecosystem. So you're deriving as much fertility as possible from the farm itself while taking into consideration the natural and native predators and the predator and pest relationships that exist within your, essentially your, your mini microcosm. And of course, at the pinnacle of all of it is, is soil health. And that is similar to permaculture and to regenerative agriculture and various holistic principles. There's some, I think, some stuff about biodynamics that can be a little weird. There's some strange things, some esoteric stuff. Borderline on that would probably be following the moon cycles of planting, et cetera, which I think I've seen, we've seen work in terms of when you put your seed in the ground based on the moon phases. Also, um, isn't it that and so you essentially, don't, yeah. don't plant necessarily in straight lines. You sort of plant kind of how the bees fly and that's kind of, it's so beautiful. Yeah, I, I think, well, I, I think Alan, I don't, I, I would imagine that's part of biodynamics, but Alan really infused the importance of beauty into the development of your farm. You're, you're cultivating biodiversity. And in that process, you're, you're prioritizing the beautification of your farm because that's going to bring the maximum amount of diversity to the farm, but it's also going to be what sustains you during the very chaotic and difficult process of repeated failure that you experience as a farmer. And so you want to create essentially a, a farm that is essentially a sanctuary, a place that's not easy to walk away from when it feels like you probably should give up. And he's like, Where, you need to develop the place that you don't want to vacation away from. It's like choosing the right cow. Like you want to choose, now this is a smaller operation. Choose the cow that when you walk out, it's going to make your chest beat. Because when that cow gets mastitis and you're having to milk her out every single morning in order to help her pass that, you're going to want to be so in love with that creature. And we don't prioritize beauty in our lives enough, but it ultimately is, is a source of energy for us, right? It's, a, it's an aesthetic arrest. It's, a, it's an inspiring resource of energy. And so Alan taught us the importance of cultivating beauty to maximize opportunity to find coexistence with nature. Mm, that's so amazing. I mean, I've had the pleasure of actually visiting the farm and getting to see it in action and had such an incredible day learning about how this all transpired. I mean, the, my first, and I, I think everybody probably has seen biggest little farm at this point. And if they haven't, they should, because especially now it's such a, 
perfect metaphor for how I think we get out of this cultural and political mess we're in, right? I mean, the, the, the film sort of elucidates so beautifully in such a concrete way how, as you said, when you cultivate equilibrium, when you cultivate, you tolerate difference. Some people think a past is a terrible thing. But the past is such an important part of the ecosystem. You need to cultivate pests in order to cultivate whatever. I forget how the whole food chain works. But and I started to think about that the other day, actually, when I was thinking about talking to you. That do you think that if you extrapolate that out, that we can start to heal as a culture if we somehow bring those values of regenerative biodynamic farming? which is tolerance and balance, tolerance of everybody's opinions. And is there, do you think there's anything there? Do you think it might be a way for us to solve this problem where everybody thinks that's totally insolvable? Well, I'll use soil as the analogy, the metaphor that I hold on to a lot. And this idea of, of a perfect harmony, which was, you know, the, the words we used, Molly and I used in trying to build this farm in perfect harmony with nature, First, you know, what we learned over the, the eight years that's documented in the film, now it's been 10, was that there is no such thing as a perfect harmony with nature. There's a comfortable level of disharmony. And there is purposefulness in that disharmony. And in fact, it is the impermanence of life organisms and perfection as we know it. It's the impermanence of life that is driving future existence. And soil teaches that. So soil, and people talk about soil all the time. And if you're not like a big fan of soil, I don't really get it. Like to me, this is a way to maybe understand the power of it. Soil is the only alchemizer of death back into life that we may ever know. In wow. the top 12 or so inches of soil exists this power to constantly pull life's impermanent properties and break them back down and turn them back into the fuel that energizes our existence on this planet that makes us different than billions of other planets that exist you know, in our universe. In fact, a lot of times people talk about life as this circle. And to me, this kind of gets to what we're going through right now with this sort of breakdown of normalcy. Life is not a circle. Life to me is this is an eight. Right. And if you start at the cross section of the eight and you work your way up, that's the birth phase. And if you get to the top part of that circle. That's the beginning of the death phase, the beginning of something sort of it's it's past its its prime of giving or of taking and learning. And now it's starting to maybe give back some of its wisdom as it wilts, as the leaf petals drop to the ground. Right. And then all as it circles back around to that cross section, it's now fully completed the death cycle and it's going towards the bottom of the eight and that's the stage of decomposition and that's kind of where we are right now i feel like we're in the stage of decomposition everything we thought we once knew and cherished is being ripped apart being broken down from its physical form back to its chemical its native innate genius like the nitrogen is now like naked in the soil again awaiting a new mission at the bottom of decomposition as it circles back up, that is reanimation, the phase of reanimation, which is triggered by a cause. So as we've been broken down and separated and placed into these dark spaces of uncertainty, the way we are reawakened back up into the life system is through a new cause, something that we can get behind. And soil gets behind the new seed as the seed signals down into the dirt for what it needs, because that's all a plant is, as a signaler, then all of a sudden, all those nutrients that have been broken down to their bare chemical essence can be pulled back up through the life system into existence through the root. And so this eight, when you turn it on its side, is the sign of infinity. And that cross section of the eight is the X factor of life, soil. And so that's how important it is. And to me, there is an endless amount of information that we don't know about it. And it's something that provides us everything. Oh my God, you're a genius, honestly. I'm like, I, I want you to be my spiritual teacher. <laughs> 
like, and I think we're in this great period of uncertainty. And there is that period between decomposition and reanimation. Because so many of my friends right now are evaluating, why did I become an accountant? Why did I pursue this? And they're questioning, what the hell was I thinking? But, and, that, and it's such a scary time because they've been, some of them, been, they've lost their jobs. They've lost, they've lost the normalcy that they know. And that dark period of uncertainty is so important to experience. And it's so important to realize that what follows next is reanimation. It is a call, a call to action. But if you've been reminded of the importance of your original intent, you are tapping closer into your genius, the original genius of you that is unique to you like it is to the chemical form, the chemistry form of that nutrient. And now you can actually put it back into the system with an intent and a purpose and a connection to where you're going in life. And that's all soil does all day long. It does nothing frivolously or out of guilt or out of shame. It does what needs to be done by the inspiration of the most common calls to get behind. And that is the rebirth of a seed or the birth of a seed. That Does un, untouched un, soil always have this capacity or is this something that a, a farmer needs to cultivate in order to grow food out of? I would say most, yeah, all, all soil where you see a plant growing, especially and more likely not on a farm, is a healthy, very biologically diverse system, very similar to the way you understand the way the gut microbiome works and the diversity of that gut microbiome. It's the same with a soil system. The more diverse it is, typically the more life it's going to have up top mm -hmm. and be able to cycle those nutrients. A farm in the last 80 years or so has become more reliant upon synthetically derived you know, chemicals, pesticides and fertilizers, which have an adverse, adverse effect to the biodiversity and the health and the nutrient cycling, cycling capability of natural soil systems. And then it eventually becomes incapable of supporting the plant. And so the farmer is then required to do more for this plant because they have unintentionally ignored the value of the natural system that exists around that plant to support the life. And we've done this over an 85 year period. And so, yeah, most farms like this one in particular had been extractively farmed, meaning all the nutrients were pulled out of it, but they were never doing things to regenerate the health of the soil. So they were required to give the plant everything it needed. So we had to come back in and essentially we bought a bank that had been robbed. And so we had to reinvest in that robbed bank in order to open it back up. But it takes a little bit of time. But the, the crazy thing is to me, is people say, well, it's not is it worth it. Is it, if it takes that much time. I'm, I'm like, look, it, too, it took us actually 260 years to really get here. And it only took us eight years to regenerate the health of the soil and turn it back into an active immune system. It took us only seven to eight years to do that with just a little bit of consciousness. And we were incredibly naive and ignorant young farmers. So it's an incredibly resilient and powerful system that doesn't take as long to repair as it actually did for us to destroy it. And, and that's the epiphany that I've had in, in, in the last 10 years. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Tell me a little bit about the difference in soil in a conventional farm and a regenerative farm in 2021? 
if you first look at a plant as it's got antennas on the top and antennas on the bottom, the roots to me represent these antennae and up top, the branches represent antenna up top. And what they're, what, what the plant is, because it doesn't have a stomach is, is it is a signaler, which I keep mentioning. It's signaling what it needs. So if there's someone there to receive those signals, they will react to it. So the plant is doing the job of photosynthesizing, essentially taking carbon from the atmosphere, hydrogen, oxygen, and turning it into what is essentially like a sugar, a liquefied carbonic sugar. And that's kind of its mechanism to pay for the things that it's signaling it needs for, its need for. So it will shoot out some of those through its, uh, the, the root exudates will, will shoot out these sugars and bacteria will come to the end of that root and say, start to eat off of those sugars. And what the plant really needs are, are these, are, is maybe the nitrogen that's locked up in these bacteria. And by fishing out all these bacteria at the end of that root, by feeding it sugar, it attracts the proatostin to like devour those bacteria and then poop out an available form of nitrogen for that plant. So there's this whole like relationship of these mutualistic relationships that are happening between the plant and soil. And so healthy soil, to answer your question, healthy soil has a host and a very diverse host of these microorganisms that are doing all this work of constantly eating and breaking down, eating each other, pooping out in these very finite, very tiny little nutrient elements that are needed by the plant. And when you're not doing when you're when you're taking plants away from soil when you're worried about killing weeds all the time and you're and you're just focused on that one crop plant you're you're destroying that soil's ability to be fed these carbohydrates and to be fed these signals that that activate all this biology beneath the ground and so you're essentially creating like a, a 25 year old kid who went to college and now lives in the attic and isn't really looking for a job and you're feeding them all the time. And they really don't know how to actually activate life around them to sort of bring them, uh, bring them into an existence of independence. So you want your plant struggling to find what it needs through a healthy soil system. And so that takes a little bit of time to actually bring those plants from that dependent state to one where they're actually now working in a coexistent sort of state with the soil that's, that's below the ground. But you have to be able to live with the imperfections of what that presents in the way of certain weeds, et cetera, that may at times appear to compete with your crop. And that's really what biodynamics teaches you and regenerative farming in general is that you just you have to ask yourself why these things exist before you go into an eradication mode in trying to find the perfect balance as you see fit. How have we gotten so far away from these farming practices? When, when did it start to happen and, and how did it happen? Because well, I assume that this is the way that we originally did it. Well, I think we have to go back. There's this really great sort of calendar example that I think I can give that might help paint how much we've done in such a short period of time in comparison to the age of the entire planet. So if we take the 4.5, 4.6 billion years that Earth has been around and we compress it into a single calendar year, if we compress it into a single calendar year, that 4.6 billion years, humans didn't even show up until the last 23 minutes in that 12 month calendar to the last 23 minutes of December 31st. The industrial revolution started in the last two seconds of December 31st. And that equates to like 260 years. The industrial revolution I would say would call like the mechanization of farming and factory and the beginning and the development of chemical farming, et cetera. In that two seconds before the end of that year, we have destroyed a third of the world's topsoil, deforested 46% of the trees, destroyed 50% of the biodiversity, more than that in the last 50, or that's 50 years, 85% of the wetlands. In just that two seconds on that 12-month calendar for a species that makes up 0.01% of life on Earth. And we did this unconscious of the consequences of how we interacted with it. And what's exciting to me and what I find a tremendous amount of hope in is that now as we have become more conscious of our effect on it, we're learning how incredibly resilient it is. Now, that's not to say give us permission now to abuse it because it is resilient, 
but that is to say that the more we lean into that collaboration and knowing that our stewardship of it matters, we will begin to see the full power and potential for its return in a shorter period of time than it took us to destroy the things that we destroyed. And so we just weren't conscious of the consequences of, say, feed the world mentality that started after World War II and that farms needed to feed the world if they were going to be able to like survive. And the most important thing was feeding the world. And that meant using chemicals to do battle with the things that you either a pest or a weed and not understanding the consequences of those actions. And that's the whole problem is we're always looking for right and wrong and everything that we do as human beings. And the thing is with nature is that it doesn't give you immediate answers of what's right and what's wrong. It teaches you through consequences over a long period of time that are driven by a number of nuanced contextual sort of elements. And so we've had to kind of live on this planet for a little while to really begin to develop our understanding for what is right and wrong. And I think we're experiencing a lot of the consequences of those decisions that we made, but not because we were evil. So are you seeing more and more people, do you think there's a groundswell I mean, I think it's changing to your point. Like, I think people are awake to this. They're getting educated about our food systems and how they work. Do you think that the consumer is really starting to shift practices? Absolutely. I think, and it's all driven by that. Like, I, it's so much more more than policy, although policy certainly helps, the demand, the consumer demand for this and their appreciation for the way things are grown and they're they're valuing that and what they buy has has changed in the last eight years, the last 10 years, I've seen in an incredible shift in support for what we do. And people, consumer actually the consumer actually knowing a tremendous amount about the importance of nutrient-dense food. And I think we've seen it with COVID. Like we've actually done extremely well in selling our our food since COVID. And it's brought on a whole new set of customers that are really focused on the nutrient-dense elements of it because they see that as their preemptive health care. Look, the farm wouldn't have been even possible without the 20-somethings that showed up here that had this like understanding of soil that I didn't understand, that I didn't have in my late 30s, early 40s. So like, I'm incredibly hopeful just because of those two things, just watching the consumer change and watching how many young people actually really care about soil health and farming and want to understand what this whole regenerative farming you know, movement is. I think we're living during a very hopeful time when it, when it comes to the stewardship of our planet, even though it doesn't feel like it at times. Would you characterize the program that you run as in kind of an, an apprentice program for young farmers? Yeah, so we started with this thing called WOOF. It was a worldwide opportunity on organic farms, and it's essentially a database of organic farms, regenerative farms that will allow you to come and volunteer. And that's what we started with. And now we've sort of focused more on on our own program. It's an apprentice program. And they come and they live here for six months. We've just shifted it now to like it's a, they're they're essentially full-time employees. They actually get paid. They live on the farm. And the idea is that they are on a path to potentially be hired to, to work on the farm. And I think I was we were given a lot of opportunities to learn from other farmers. And the thing that's been lost over the last 85 years is a connection to this lore and understanding and these ways of interacting with the farm. Like, think about it. Like, the last farmer that really didn't use chemicals would have would be like 125 years old if I were to find a farmer that at least had 25 growing seasons or more of experience to be able to pass on information to me. So it's so important that we continue to hand down our and hand over our experiences. And that's honestly, that's what's going to, 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 to shift the, the way that we, we interact with, with nature. Are there any kind of and is there anything quantifiable you can point to as a farmer of your ilk that can say, hey, this is this is the nutrient density of an apple from my farm, and this is what it is at a giant grocery store conventionally grown? Yeah, we've started to collect. It's expensive, but we got some funding to do some nutrient analysis of the eggs. 
Oh, wow. Oh, my God. I wish I, I wish I had the numbers on the tip of my head, but we saw like a two to three time increase in like gluten and vitamin A. The omega-3 to omega-6 ratio was higher. The nutrient profile of the eggs was being, it had been passed on from the health of the soil because the the the, the feed that we were giving the chickens, which was an organic soy-free feed from Modesto milling, hadn't changed, but the health of the soil had. And we were watching how the things they were eating off the soil was impacting that nutrient profile. And we we have some money to do some more of that testing in the future. And we hope to have a, a bit more quantifiable data. But for us, it was a, it was reassuring to see, you know, that 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 nutrient profile passed on. But yeah, there's a lot of other ways to quantify the value of this that's even beyond nutrient density. As consumers, how do we know the difference between there's so many different, there are so many varying labels on everything. How do we know that we're eating an egg that is really coming from a farm chicken? Because there's all these different, there's all this different nomenclature around cage-free. And the little bit of research I've done, it's really not, I don't think it's actually that indicative of the chicken's life. So are there certain word, just taking in the egg category, for example, are there certain words that we should look for on packaging? If we really want our meat and our eggs and our dairy, for those of us who consume it, to be from farms that are regenerative, where the animals live close to nature, and what kind of words should we be looking for on packages? That's a really good question. And I will say, like, it's funny, eggs are the gateway drug into people caring about suddenly caring about this way of farming because once you've had an egg that is fully grass pastured meaning a chicken that's raised on grass you suddenly go what is the deal why is that egg so good so yeah cage free and first let me say this because it's important that we don't create guilt and shame around this because not everybody can afford the best of the best right but we're taking steps Cage-free is obviously better than a chicken that's living in a cage, but cage-free doesn't mean that that chicken is running around on healthy grass, soil, pastures that have plenty of diversity in there for the chicken to eat from. It just means that it's not living in a cage and oftentimes doesn't affect the, from what I personally have experienced, doesn't affect the flavor or the quality of the egg. But it's, it's at least more humane than, say, something that is forced to live inside. They also call it free range. I think that sort of gets you into more of like, for sure, it living, it's living outside. I think what you want to look for as the best is a organically raised chicken on fully grass pastures. You want to look for that grass pastured raised hen. To me, that is going to be the indication of, of, of health. It may not even be organic because let's say it's a it's a young farming couple that doesn't have the money in order the time to spend time dealing with the resources. Ask them a few questions. Do the chickens actually live on pasture? Are they able to? Are you moving those the, the egg the egg mobile around? Are they getting fresh pasture? They may not have time to get organically certified, but they could have healthier eggs than the next guy that has an organic label on on his on his egg box. So I think yeah, you're looking for fully grass pastured mm-hmm. operations, and that to me is going to be you're better shot at a, at a healthier, more humanely raised animal and a healthier egg. Is that, is that the same for cows? Because I saw somewhere the other day, an animal rights person saying there's no such thing as a humanely raised animal that's being used for meat or milk. I actually don't agree with that because I think throughout the course of the animal's life, you, you can be very humane with it. But as it pertains to milk, is it a grass-fed cow? Like your your cows, <laughs> when I was at your farm, one of your beautiful cows came over and sort of came head to head with me and eye gazed me, basically. It seemed like a happy and cow that was to the, me. And that was the last time you ever ate a hamburger. <laughs> <laughs> I'll eat it once in a while now, but only if it comes from a farm like yours. To see an animal that's happy and at peace and free grazing in a pasture, you can't help but wonder what what are the nutritional and energetic qualities that are going into the, the the product that that animal is then offering us. And with dairy specifically, like how you're, you have this beautiful dairy 
dairy cow. I don't know what you call it. Cat pasture. Maggie. Ma- we call, yeah, we call Maggie. her Maggie. Maggie, Maggie the Brown Swiss Dairy. Yeah. Yeah. But you asked a question in the beginning and that is like, how do, you know, what's the ultimate? And I think you're looking for meat that is not just grass raised, but grass finished. And then third, you're looking for at least maybe an organic label and or a local. Like it is a full, like that cow was born in the United States, raised in the United States and finished on grass pasture in, in the United States. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the challenge is, is that oftentimes grass finished animals can maybe have some tougher meat. And so you have to remember that what we've been eating at like pick your franchise steakhouse is a grain fed animal and the meat tends to be more tender, but it will not have the deep beefy flavor of a grass finished animal. So there are different ways to cook that meat, which I can't go into now because I don't really know. It's more Molly's area, but that's what you have to kind of shift the way you cook fully pastured hen and the way you would cook um, grass, fully grass finished beef. But that's what you're, to me, that's what you would be looking for in, in those scenarios. A lot of times we get asked, like, how can you care for these animals like you do and, and then eat them? And I think that's a, there's not a simple answer to that. And there's not a one size fits all answer. And it's a very personal decision. Me personally, I do eat meat, but I also believe in the humane treatment of those animals as the greatest form of reverence that I can show them for that sacrifice. Now, yeah, I can hear the voices of opposition saying, well, you're still killing it at the end. And, and, and that, and that is true. And I think it's also important because we have vegans and vegetarians that work on this farm. Molly was a vegetarian for 14 years prior to farming. I think it's important for all of us to keep something in mind. And I'm going to share a truth that not many farms will ever share with you. And that is if you eat, say, avocados or, or our lemons or our peaches, for us to grow those, those fruits require that every year we kill between 30 and 40,000 gophers, thousands of ground squirrels, and then accidentally bees, hummingbirds, ladybugs through even using organically derived sprays. And if we didn't kill the, the gophers and the, and the squirrels, we would, they, they, they would destroy the roots as they do and we lose trees. So if you eat, you have blood on your hands. It just depends on it. at what point do you consider life so precious that you shouldn't kill it in order for you to survive. And no farms will, will, will share this with you. But if you drive around Ventura County and you look around, you'll see these like white, small white piping of tubes. And there's poison bait in there for ground squirrels. And they're doing all kinds of gopher trapping and mitigation as well. But it's not something they're talking about. But I, I just think it's important that we are sharing in essentially the, the impermanence and the death of living things in order for us to live, regardless of, of, of whether you're a vegan, vegetarian, or a meat eater. I think, I think that's a really good point. Why did Molly start eating meat again? She started, honestly, she started blacking out. She would stand up and she also had eaten a tremendous amount of soy as a vegetarian and developed is it PCOS. Mm-hmm and was told that she probably wouldn't be able to have kids and started looking at meat as an option for protein and then tried it and felt better and just incorporated what she felt was humanely raised stuff into her diet. Mm-hmm. And then she cut all the soy out of, I used to think like she wouldn't chew gum without with soy in it. She wouldn't use a hair product with soy in it. <laughs> she like annihilated soy from the universe and she reversed it. And we had a we had a little boy. And so even watching her go through that to me was like another factor of like, oh wow, like what you eat matters and food is medicine and removing certain foods is also a version of medicating oneself. So anyway, that that was that was what led her essentially back into seeking animal protein. I think it let it be said too that and because I, I was vegetarian for a long time too and found myself eating a lot of highly processed soy or kind of meat-like products. I think there's not all soy is is the same. Soy isolate is different than like maybe some fresh tofu. It probably won't impact your body in the same way. It's it's funny to, I mean, having been as well a person my pendulum has gone all over the place. I went from camel lights and diet cokes 
to macrobiotic right. to ve- vegetarian to omnivore. It's like it, it's been it's been a really interesting journey. And I think for me, part of the part part of the thing that's so interesting is when you really start, and you touched on this with Molly, like when you really start to tune in and listen to your body, when you eat something and you're not eating, standing up and rushing while you're on a phone call or you're, you know, grabbing some fast food and using the, the, the busyness of modern life to kind of numb yourself to what your actual body's reaction is to food. You actually slow down and tune in. It's incredible. The, the, the volumes of wisdom that you get about yourself and what works for you. And for some people, it really works to be vegan. For me, I, I had similar as Molly. I, I, I fainted. Raw foods really hurt my stomach. It's, it's sort of a process of trial and error. And I think we all get so prescriptive and judgmental about food and what everybody should be eating and what's right and what's not. And the truth is everybody just really has to tune into their body. And I, I remember when I was a kid and the East Coast and we used to go to farms to pick apples in the autumn and you would pick an apple off the tree of the farm and eat it. The smell, the the aroma, the sweetness mixed with the tartness mixed and how you felt, you could physically feel like this beautiful thing happening in your body and all your senses. And you really do lose that if you are having a conventional apple that's sat in a truck for six weeks on the way to the grocery store. So, and, and maybe for some people that's okay. But for, uh, for me, I'm somebody who has really tuned in and, and conti- it's a process. You know, I, I really continue to, to tune in. So whatever that means, whatever I end up eating or not eating on this long journey, I think the fact that there are farms and there is this kind of movement towards eating real food and seeing the impact on the environment, the the earth, the air, the quality of the soil, and then ultimately your body. It's just, it's, it seems like such a no brainer. It's amazing. And you have that, Molly has that, as you said too, and you have that sort of, you've, you've remained connected to your animal like wisdom, the way sheep and cows graze when given the opportunity, they are making decisions off of feedback loop that's signaling to their brain from their gut based on what they've just eaten and how it makes them feel. I didn't have that experience of food and how it made me feel like actually thinking about it until I was in my mid thirties. That's insane. Right? So I was chasing around euphoria for my life in ways that did not include what I ate that day, a feeling of contentness, a feeling of anxiety. I never put it through the filter of like, oh, and what did I eat? Yeah, I'm probably gonna like everyone else spend some time in therapy, working out all my past undigested childhood pain. But at the same time, what I eat is also influencing the lens that I use to see life. And that was something that I really learned by hanging around Molly who questions that at nauseum. <laughs> and it really changed me. And I think it's so cool to have that skill that you have because it is, it's a burden, but it also is a really amazing guiding force. Mm. What is it like working together and loving together and being so close and intertwined on so many levels? Wow. So, I mean, if we hadn't gotten ourselves into couples therapy around year (laughs) three, we probably wouldn't, we would be farming on two different sides of the farm. It was really hard. I think we shared the dream. What we didn't, what we weren't able to do quick enough is learn how to process such a high level of anxiety that we were sharing together at the same time around the same issues and find a way to stay connected even amidst our the feelings of sheer terror and shame that goes along with the mistakes you make as a farming couple. So it's been a really, you know, huge journey for us, but honestly, it's been incredible to to be able to learn the value of vulnerability and learn the signals and the cues from one another when we are becoming disconnected and the fear and the anxiety that we're struggling with is in the way of our being able to see one another. Mm. And so I, I think we've, we've been through a lot. There was 
a tremendously difficult period for three or four years as the farm was like, I mean, it was all in the film. We just didn't show you the couples therapy sessions as a farm. I wish was kind you of had. Like feeling like, I know right? it would have been, a, it would have been an 18 hour film. <laughs> um, we say we, we spent, we, we, we spent enough money so that our couples therapists could buy a summer home so that Molly and I could live in one home. But I still think it's a better deal. Worth it. Worth it. <laughs> uh, right. Uh, but no, it's been it's been really amazing journey. And I, I and I think but, you know, don't underestimate that because a lot of people, I think, sit there when I would go do Q&As and they sit there with their spouse and they're just like feeling terrible about themselves because like knowing that they would tear each other apart. And how did John and Molly do it so perfectly? So I started sharing that, look, we had a net and that net was was really called our leaning into vulnerably leaning into like what we had to do to evolve as a couple and as individuals. And then just to take it out one concentric circle, what about the, how do you keep team, a team together of farmers who are going through these incredible highs and lows and uh, both emotional, but also physical? How do you manage culture at the farm? You know, it's funny. That's a really great question. In the first few years, probably the first five to seven years of the farm, all we ever talked about was that our goal was to manage the immunology of the farm and from the soil out. And then we realized that the farm had gotten so complicated, it had become so dependent upon the interaction and the cooperation of people. So it wasn't just about the soil creating, essentially perpetuating a disease on the farm. It could also be the way the toxic environment that could develop out of a lack of understanding between different players on the farm. So we said, all right, we've done the immunology thing. We got that kind of working. Now we have to really focus on team cohesion and communication and teach team members that don't come to the world with a tremendous amount of empathy, teach them empathy, teach team members that don't come to the world with a tremendous amount of assertion, assertiveness, teach them assertiveness. And, and instead of having them come to us and complain about each other, guide them on how to talk directly to each other and have those conversations in a functional way and spend the time on it. It always felt like ridiculous to spend so much time on the, on the, I guess what we would call now, like the HR issues of the farm. Cause it was like, we got so much else to do guys. We don't have time to be dealing with this. It required us to go deep internally with ourselves about how we managed people and how much we had to grow and learn in that process mm-hmm. and how we needed to be there to help guide the teams through some of those evolutions themselves. And the time spent on that has created a more dynamic team over time that now has the wisdom and the capability to tap into the various nuanced solutions that we need as a team because they are healthier in the way that they are communicating with one another. It's not perfect, but we will never not think it's not a priority. And that's what's changed. What is the process to facilitate those conversations? Well, I, I think it's it's a case-by-case situation for us. And Molly and I are going through it at the same time in that we're learning how to manage. We will hear a complaint, but we try to immediately guide that person into that direct conversation with the mm-hmm. person they're having a hard time with. I used to do this thing where I would defend a person. They would come to me, complain, and they would say, person X, you know, yelled at me, made me cry. I would go to person X and I would be like, you got to stop that. You can't do that. You're hurting their feelings. You need to be more empathetic. That's just me telling them an experience that they need to have themselves. They need to see, they need to look in the eye of another person. They need to connect. Because like, that's what this whole thing is about. This whole thing, the farm, our existence here is going it's about going beyond this whole like meaning and purpose pursuit, which was like something that became really popular in the last two generations. And, and it's about meaning, purpose, and connection because connection keeps it real. Our connection to nature helps us to understand the fragility of it, its dependency on us, and our connection, direct connection to human beings takes us and sets our brain into a very different state. And it opens up our empathetic qualities. Mm. And so what we try to do is facilitate healthy, direct connection around those issues to try to build empathy and trust. And, and, and those difficult situations are the foundational elements for trust that is built over time. Like you can't just walk up to each other and immediately trust each other as real people. You kind of have to go through some bad things. 
and you have to see how far you how far and low you can fall together and actually still survive. To me, that's what builds trust. And I, and I think those are the opportunities we're giving ourselves as managers of a farm and we're trying to create for our team members. Yeah. Tell me about this new project that you alluded to, this new film project. So we never stop filming. And I, I was never really sure what it was going to be, but we are in the year 2024, we'll be releasing a 12 part series, which is a continuation of yeah. The Biggest Little Farm. Thank you. It's been greenlit by a major streamer, but I, I can't say yet which one, but we start production officially in February, but we've been, we've been shooting for the last nine months since we yeah. finished The Biggest Little Farm. And I'm really excited because it's going to, we're going to be able to go a lot deeper into some of the stories with the character and the animal characters that we've developed here on our farm, but also the ways in which those things on our farm interact with the entire ecosystem of our planet. So it will slowly expand out from this microcosm, microcosm to include the other players that are dependent upon our land as a form of habitat. And it'll still be the same thing of taking people through the various challenges that, that we are hit faced with, and then the solutions that we seek within the toolbox of nature to try to remedy it. And it'll constantly be putting our ideology in check, but I'm, I'm so excited about it. And I feel really lucky to be in a position to, to launch this series. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Honestly, it was so, you're just such a wonderful person. And I, I just, what you're doing is so important. And when you think about the reach that your work has the way the way that you were able to amplify it so beautifully with the film and and inspire so many other farmers and and consumers to really rethink how they're what they're eating and and how it's grown it's just you're having such an amazing cultural impact and we're all really grateful to you for more from John Chester head to apricotlanefarms.com and definitely watch The Biggest Little Farm if you haven't already. That's a wrap on today's episode. If you have a second, please rate, review, and hit subscribe if you haven't already. Don't forget to share the Goop podcast with a friend. And in the meantime, for more, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.